Thessalonians chapter 1 is where I would like to focus our attention for the day. First Thessalonians, I'm going to go to the First Thessalonians chapter 5. By the way, do you know that um, all Christians need to be able to count? In fact, you might have an eternal responsibility as an accountant because during all of eternity, you will be counting your blessings and naming them one by one. And, um, and it will surprise you, amaze you, to see what God has done. I think we might as well start counting even now because it amazes us even now to see that uh, God has blessed us and continues to do so in tremendous ways. And yet, our proclivity, our tendency is simply to focus on our needs more than what we already have. And not because of any merit of our own, but because of God's goodness towards us. Today I want to focus on this in terms of thankfulness. Thankfulness is God's will. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28, I want to draw your attention. I will be driving fast, so please wear your seatbelts. With some practical instructions or injunctions and some exhortations concerning church relationships. And so as I share with you from scripture, and I look into the audience, I'm going to be placing what I read from scripture onto you, because Paul was speaking to the believers at a place called Thessalonica. But to do that, I need to give you a context, a background, because I'm in chapter 5, and you haven't maybe recall, I believe you may have read it already in chapter 1, so you can have a context of what is happening in terms of the background. You know, of course, that Paul's traveling buddies were primarily Silas and Timothy. And this time in, Thessalon- in Thessalonians, where we will be focusing our attention, this is Paul's second missionary journey where he went to Thessalonica and shared the gospel. But I want you to get a context. Jerusalem, by the way, the, I believe there it is. The church there in Thessalonica, that's what a church looks like today in Thessalonica, Greece, today. Back then, the audience that Paul was writing to did not have such an elaborate setup. Paul is now, he visited Thessalonica, and I want you to visualize this for a moment, because you know when you hear about Paul on his road to Damascus, his story, and he had just left Jerusalem with marching orders to arrest And um, if persons resist, Paul has been given authority to apply some other form of force. But now he's in Thessalonica. Well, he's not there at the time he's writing this, but I want you to visualize that's approximately 945 miles away. That's not a close distance. You know, 945 miles away. That's if you're going on a straight line. That's a long distance. And his mission was to carry the good news 
to the ends of the earth. Particularly, the focus was to the Gentiles. But there he was. He was preaching in Thessalonica, and many people responded. Of course, he went to the synagogue where he spoke, but while he was there, of course, there was an element of Jews who were present, and they got upset. Not surprisingly, and yet, at one hand, it's surprising because they're supposed to believe the truth. But they were angry with Paul and Silas and, of course, Timothy. So they went down to the market. They hired some guys, and they caused trouble. Do you believe you can find people to cause trouble anywhere? Say, come go with me. <laughs> you know, and they will join you. Well, they went, and basically, they were heading to where Paul was. And Paul's, uh, of course, friends, uh, a fellow believer, said, in other words, they're coming. So we need to get you out of town. So they snuck Paul out of town, and, of course, Silas and Timothy went along with him. They left Thessalonica, head to a place called Berea. You've heard about these people. you heard about the Bereans. That was about 45 miles away. You know, that's, again, for those of you who want to visualize and don't visualize distance very well. So that's like you were in Yamakura and you went to Lifewood Key and then doubled back and went back, you know, and still have an extra mile to go, which would probably take you to Rose Island if you just walk on water to get there. So it was a long distance. When they went to Berea, they said that they, there was another Jewish population there. They were a little bit more noble, but they responded to the truth of the gospel. And when the news got back to those same troublemakers back in Thessalonica, that Paul is over there in Berea, do you know those, I, I was going to use another adjective, those people left Thessalonica to go to Berea to bother with Paul, traveling 45 plus miles just to stop them from preaching the truth of the gospel. But Joe, if that was you, you'd have been in jail. You know, I know you, you spent a lot of time in jail anyhow, but that's, you know, <laughs> thank you for placing the Gideons and sharing uh, in your ministry of 32 years. Um, you have been faithful, and I'm sure God has a, a comment for you one day. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Well, the, 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 the believers there, they said that we need to get, again, Paul out of, because these people were determined to break up what Paul was doing. Now, I don't know, we, we've seen some local people around here in our country on this island. When there's an issue or something that they believe a cause that they want to pursue, that they will go downtown. Ross and Square seemed to be the popular place, you know, <clears throat> you know, with a group, you know, in front of this place to cause, uh, to get attention, they say. Well, to travel 45 miles, and remember, they had no jitney. I just want you to understand this. And they were prepared to do this, you know, but I don't understand, but, and yet, it shows you the magnitude of how far some people would go to avoid um, hearing the truth and to support their cause. Again, Paul had to move from Berea because the word is they come in. And again, no jitney, no what's up. I wondered who told them that they were in Berea because they snuck out of town. And the house that he was living in, or the, the friend whose name was Jason, they went to the house looking for Paul. Paul is where he left. So they dragged Jason out. 
took him downtown to Royston Square, I mean to the court, you know, so that he can be at least tried because you were harboring, what would he call him, a fugitive? But they charged him, they, they released him though, and some of the other believers there in Thessalonica. And then they released him, Paul is now in Berea, they're coming, so Paul left again, somebody probably TikTok him or WhatsApp, and so he left, he went down to Athens. God, they stayed there for a while, but he told um, Timothy and Silas, y'all stay here in Berea. Got down there in Athens, waited a few months, didn't hear anything, but now he's concerned because he just was forced out of Thessalonica. So he wanted to find out what's going on. So he sent back Timothy to go back to Thessalonica to find out how the believer was doing because I didn't spend enough time there so I can properly disciple them. Timothy came back with some news and told him, well, they're doing pretty good for the most part, but eh, two things are probably bothering them. Now, one, some of them are slipping back into immorality. And then there's another concern that the believers have. They're wondering, when is Jesus coming back? Because, you know, in Thessalonica, Paul introduced this new gospel to them that, hey, they were used to, in Thessalonica, they used to see their God because they had idols. Paul introduced them to an invisible God. And Paul told them that this invisible God is coming back. Coming back? So the believers in Thessalonica are now wondering, when is he coming? Because Paul said he's coming back soon. By the way, have your grandmother ever told you that Jesus is coming back? If you had a gun, it, it says coming back soon, and you all said, he ain't come back yet. They've been saying that a long time. And some people use that and say, well, money, I don't know. I might as well do what I can do because my grandmother used to say that. Maybe. So they had the same issue. Concerned that Jesus is not coming back, I don't see him. And Paul said in such a way that there's a sense of urgency. He's coming back, I don't see him. So now Paul is writing them this letter to encourage them after he heard what uh, Timothy had brought back this news to them. And so Paul is going to share with them uh, some truth. And I found it instructive that what he says has application for us today. I want to begin. Let me read the entire, um, well, no, let me read 12 through 28 in your presence, just so that you can have a context. By the way, when we're reading this, I find this very helpful when reading and studying scripture. Listen, if you can, to the verbs um, in the passage. They are active. They're telling you something is happening. So it helps to understand because verbs are very, very important, both in English and certainly in Greek, because it tells you a lot about the passage. If you take the, the verb out, really the sentence does not even exist. It does not make any sense to begin with. So verbs are very important. First Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 12. Now we ask you, brothers and sisters, to acknowledge those who labor among you and preside over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them most highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers and sisters, admonish the undisciplined or the unruly. Comfort the discouraged. Help the weak. Be patient toward all. See that no man pays evil for evil to anyone but always pursue what is good for one another and for all. Always rejoice. Constantly 
pray in everything, give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not extinguish the spirit. Do not treat prophecies with contempt, but examine all things. Hold fast to what is good. Stay away from every form of evil. Now, may the God of peace himself make you completely holy, and may your spirit and your soul and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is trustworthy, and he will, in fact, do this. Brothers and sisters, pray for us too. Greet all the brothers and sisters with a holy kiss. I call on you solemnly in the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers and sisters. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. That's the passage. Let's take this from the beginning. Paul is addressing the attitudes towards leaders between verses 12 through 13. Now, at the risk of being labeled uh, egotistical or selfish or arrogant, because I am privileged to serve as one of the leaders here at Calvary Bible Church. I read because I'm quoting scripture here when it says this in verse 12, it talks about appreciate. By the way, let me pause you to say this. I am so very much appreciative of the ministry of Pastor Arnett last Sunday. My brother, you have been amazing. I, I thank you. Personally, I started to make my way to you at the end of the service, but you were stampeded by some people, so I decided to yield um, to give you a break. But I, I thank you for your ministry. And um, as a matter of fact, and I am going to ask for those who were here and privileged to hear that um, profound uh, message that God has, it was your story of your life. In other words, that's your story. That's how God would have intervened um, in your life um, over the years. And if you were here and you were not impressed because you're not a spectator, but if you were impacted by that uh, message, would you give God a round of applause, please? If you think because of what was shared last Sunday by Pastor Arnett, if you think you know him better because of what he shared, uh, give God another round of applause. I certainly did. Now, and we've been together for a, a little while. And hearing it in, in a format that almost chronicled what's happening in God in his life, I come away with a new appreciation for the man and for the man that God has used so powerfully over the years. Thank you once again, Pastor, for sharing your, your story with us as God would have intervened in your life. At one point, because I knew I was going to speak um, today, I thought, you know, I had a similar story. You know, God is working in our life. Of course, but there's something you mentioned, Pastor, that I, I didn't have, because you said at one point, you know, you, you, you probably had more money than sense. You know, um, I, I couldn't say that. You know, uh, uh, I didn't think I had I, neither. But um, I, I had, uh, I remember my first 
at my first job, uh, and it's a crazy way how I got, it's amazing, you God, God, I still don't understand why I'm standing in front of you now. You know, because I couldn't script this out and plan this and say this is how I'm going to, to do whatever. As most of you know, I, I've said this, said this often, uh, I was born on the big yard, so outside, that's Andros. Uh, I told my mom once, I think I was 15, and uh, I said to her, Mom, I'm going to, I don't remember the context of the question, but I told her that I'm going to shoot marble as a way of living. <laughs> you know. Okay. You must understand context. See, you see, I shouldn't laugh. There was nobody I saw in Andrews who used to go to work. I mean, consistently. So, marble, I love to shoot marble. So, I was going to shoot marble. The nurse lived in the clinic, so I thought she didn't have to go to work because was, she was living in the clinic. And there was one other man who went to Batelco. Yeah, it's called Batelco. He used to ride his bicycle there. So, there was only two jobs, and they had a JP. The other people work intermittently based on whether the grass go on the side of the road, and my mom was one of them. And so they weed the grass during this time period, just before Christmas, so it looks like Christmas. All right. So what I supposed to do? I was an entrepreneur. I started shooting marble. And I joined with my friend, Terry, and we, we set up a cooperative we call a marble bank, where we used to cheat other people who we shoot marble against. I told my mom I was going to be, I'm going to make a living shooting marble. And she had a short response. She said, you can dead. <laughs> that means I, I can't live or shoot marble. You know? And so my first job, which was crazy because the principal asked me if I wanted to be, a, had an application. And I, I never finished high school. I've said this before. I was, just need to go back to finish grade 12 because I only spent about five weeks in grade 12. And uh, while I was in grade 12, the principal, I think the principal, and I'm going to look over to my cousin oh, and the porters because they would know who I'm talking about, so I ain't calling no name. But I think they had a child in every grade it's to keep their population up in the school. His wife went on maternity leave, and I was asked to go and sit in the class while I was in grade 12. I had, I was minding my own business, go sit in the class, and these were 13-year-olds at this point. These are the same boys I shoot them up about in break time. And now they tell me to go sit in the class, now I move the status of teacher. I said, God, what's going on? You know, and then what I supposed to do is say, I can tell. That's if you misbehave. So I go shoot marble with these same people. That's my part of the story. And then, to shorten the story, the girl in the class, who was also the principal, said, I have one application for one of you to sign to be a teacher. So go home and ask your parents whether or not you can be a teacher or not, whether they have your permission. My dad was not there because working someplace in Chuck Creek because there was no work to keep him working in that community. Well, when the principal left the room, he came back and told um, uh, us that, uh, you must tell me tomorrow what your parents said. When he left, the other girl in the class, my classmate who was also asked the same question, whose name, let me see if it's safe to call her name in here. You all might know her. 
Uh, by the way, she's passed on, so I won't have to confront her, and I'm sure where she went, so I'm not going to say I will see her. So I don't know. But she said to me, as soon as the principal left the room, she says, I'm sure I'm going to get that application because I'm smarter than you. Well, jingle bell, well, something rise up in me. Well, she said she's smarter than me because she had six BJCs at the time and I had five. And the only one that she had that I didn't have, well, I, well she's counted as six. She had a, a subject that she'd passed called cookery. <laughs> cookery? Is that the subject? Well, back then, we didn't come there. I thought everybody can cook. So what's the point here? But cookery. So, 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 okay. If she was quiet, I would have intentionally gone home and forget to ask my mom about what the principal said. But no, her and her big mouth talking about smarter than me. So I went home and I told my mom, the principal said he has an application and he asked whether or not we have parents' permission to sign. So what am I supposed to do? And my mom, she gave me an answer. She says, well, go ahead. It's a government job. <laughs> so I went back to school the next day, and I told the principal, when he asked, what did your parents say? Say said, yes, sir. She said, I, I could do it. The short of the story is, I got the job. I was making $10.90 a day. I was rich. I can now buy crackers and soda. It was wonderful, wonderful. I was telling you, Pastor Fred, you know, I was rich $218 a month. No more I had to beg Larry for one of them prunes that he used to bring out their shop. You know, that's another story. But <clears throat> appreciate, <laughs> acknowledge, it simply means you cannot appreciate that which you do not know. You cannot appreciate me unless you know me. You cannot appreciate, that's why, again, I, I, was, I appreciate you so much, Pastor uh, Annette, for what you shared last week and to get to know him. And so if you understand me, you, you, you better appreciate me. The scripture Paul is saying, acknowledge and appreciate um, those that do certain things among you. Do not for example, he talks about it. Appreciate and acknowledge and esteem highly in love. Love is to be the element in which this esteem is to have its subsistence or its nourishment. It is, if it is confined only to your heart, like some people say, I love you in my heart, but I never get out of there. You have no value to me. You talk, I love you from a distance. From a distance. That's all. These are the builders, these are the leaders who are the teachers and the watchmen, these are the guardians of your soul, your spiritual, but these are the soldiers who guard and protect you spiritually. It talks about those who diligently labor, these are the persons who spend, think uh, of, as an example of Pastor Raw, before he shows up here each week, you think he's just speaking off the cuff, you think he would have spent some time praying, you know, um, preparing, reading, understanding, having to be immersed, in, in what scriptures and what God is revealing to him through scripture before he steps before you. Be diligent. These are the ones who diligently labor among you. Have responsibility for you. These are the governors, the exemplars, the presidents, the administrators. In other words, these are the guides in the Lord because none of us lord it over you. It is a privilege under the Lord. You've used and heard the term yourself. You have the chief shepherd and the under shepherd servants. 
as God allows. Instruct and admonish or warn to put into their minds to entreat and to beg and to exhort. That's what it means to instruct. These are the ones who do that daily. Verse 13 says this, live in peace. Now, remember now the context is they're talking to believers. Why is it necessary to say to believers, live in peace? Do you believe that some believers do not live in peace? Mm-hmm. Some of them bigoty. Mm-hmm. Some might be right here. You know, and we were trying to see if we can get a system that once you come in, if you're bigoty, it'll register. Beep, beep. <laughs> you know. Live in peace. In other words, the exhortation means that we are to cultivate towards the members of the body of Christ such good feeling as will dispose us not only to refrain from strife, but also to be on good terms with them. We are, after all, individually and collectively subject to him who is indeed the prince of peace. And so we are not only to live um, in peace with your fellow beloved, but with all men. That's what Paul is admonishing the believers at Thessalonica. Then we look at verse 14 and 15. This talks about a relationship among ourselves. Admonish, which simply means caution, warn, reprove, and to do so gently. To tell someone what they must do, but without sharpness or critical spirit. It is not a rebuke or a condemnation, but neither is it merely a suggestion or an advice. It is urgent and serious, but associated with comfort. And it talks about this is what you are to do, admonish the unruly. We have some people in the church who are unruly. Thank you very much. Now, what does that mean? It was a military word used in Greek. It means, if you ever watch the, when they have the independence or some special event, national event, and the police lines up and everybody's in order, and, they, and when they, the, whoever the head, I'm gonna call him head police because I don't know the, the uh, military term. But he's back out some command. Hey, hey! And, the, and, and they just line up, and they shoulder to shoulder. And then there's people, and, then he's, and people are just, because everybody has to be in a certain rank in order. And I, I'm saying, what did they say? It, it ain't for me to know. But people just get in line. Unruly means out of line, so the rank. And so if we as believers are shoulder to shoulder in rank, that so unruly means you're stepping out of Right, you make my line look wobbly. And if there is a, a fracture in the right, it means then that we're giving the enemy an opportunity to get in. Do you, 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 as they say, you feel me? I know what the new word is, because I can't, don't feel me. But to somebody say, you feel me? Do you understand what I'm saying here? So when it says unruly, Paul is talking again to believers in the church. Some of them are unruly, and he says, admonish, the unruly, that is the disorderly, those who leave their place or their rank, the insubordinate, don't tell me nothing. This is the self-willed person who simply demands to hold his own opinion or his own preference. Paul rejoices over what he calls the solid front presented by, by the faith of the believers in Colossians and Colossae. Um, so I call them the CBC, Colossae Bible Church. 
Because that's exactly what happened in Colossians chapter 2, verse 5. The solid front is not broken, but when it is, it gives praise for the enemy. I want to move quickly down. It talks about admonishment is not always needed. Sometimes the very opposite is required. Encourage the faint-hearted. There are some people, some believers who are faint-hearted. They're not unruly, but they're faint-hearted. What does that mean? These are the people who, of course, uh, who by nature or experience tend to be timid, just seemingly nervous um, and irritated, without strength. They need comfort. In the sense of they need some assisting strength to be brought to them. Those unsure of their eternal destination might be that position or in that place. Those whose hearts are sunken because of unemployment, neglect, um, reject, unforgiveness, despondent because of fear, the bereaved, the abused, the hopeless. I was in the school last Thursday, Wednesday, to observe. A teacher was in the high school, and the teacher asked a question to the student. We talked, the topic was about family life health and was about abuse. And uh, the teacher was saying, okay, trying to give definitions. And then she says, is this one boy in the corner? Then she said, but the solution to all of this is love. Then he says, just reflect. He said, there's no love in my house. That was stunning. What is the teacher to do with that? He said, there's no love. And another girl who was sitting up opposite him on the other, end of, other side of the desk, another desk, because it was two together. And she said, that's none love in my house too. That's sad. And I wanted to see how the teacher handled that. But she said, she said don't, don't say that. But he was just, because you just define what it is. Love, because she said, if there's love in your house, nobody should be abused. And he said, there's no love in my house. Wow. And then she, she, well, I talked to her about something afterwards in terms of how she should handle it in terms of respond. But before she could respond, there's another uh, boy up in another area of the class, because she asked a question, what are you going to, what will you do if this happens? This boy says, I will, uh, you know, I will get revenge. Wow, that's a response. Faint hearted. People, believers here, there are some believers who are faint hearted, and we must be sensitive to know that and be able to respond appropriately, appropriately to them for various reasons. That's important if we are to minister and cater to the needs of those among us. Then there are those who need help, that is support, the weak, those suffering under temptations or lapse into immorality, those are simply without strength. Some people are referred to as weak. So not only do we have those who are unruly, we have those who are timid, we have those who are weak, and Paul is addressing all of them. He says also, we are to be patient. You ever hear anybody who asks you, Lord, give me, give me patience, Are you serious? Why, why do you need it? Why do you even ask God for it? He says, give me patience. How do you develop patience? You have to be in a place where someone stretch you, make you long, suffering. <laughs> you know, so God's put you in a place where you have to suffer long, where you can bear long. And that's why Paul says to them, be patient, because there were people, there were believers who, will, as we say, some people like to talk about that last nerve. 
You have, I know why you put it out there for people to find. But some people say, you are my last nerve. Are you getting on my last nerve? It may be something they say, something they did, and you feel like this is the last toy. If you do that again, then you stop. Because right behind that is coming with some threat that you know you can't carry out. But you say it anyhow. But we are to be patient with all men. Though different approaches must be taken with different people, believers must be patient with all. This is because true Christianity is shown by its ability to love and help difficult people. Isn't it said before, I think I first heard the phrase with um, Dr. David Allen, but hurt people hurt people? True, he said, wow, I could remember that. That's not complicated. Hurt people hurt people. So when I'm hurt, I hurt people. I can tell you when, in a few moments about somebody who hurt me, and I can tell you what I do. <clears throat> Stay tuned. Verse 15, no one repays another with evil for evil. That's clear. Somebody said, you kill my dog, I kill your cat. Tit for tat. Rather, we are to seek what is good for one another and for all men. I was in a school given the opportunity, well, given the responsibility. I had a full class. In other words, I had a class from nine to three. That was my responsibility. I took a break when they had a break, lunch break, morning break. The administrator gave me the responsibility or designation as master of discipline. I refused to teach. I think it's impossible to effectively teach unless you have law and order. I need discipline. In other words, while I'm talking, my students can't be talking. Because what's the point? You know, I can't listen to you. Talk. So anyhow, I was given this responsibility of they call it master of discipline for the entire school. We had more than 800 students in the school. Okay, which means that if I, in my judgment, determined that a child was so unruly, so out of order, then I would apply the Board of Correction to the seat of learning, okay? Now, this particular case, the administrator had a how do you, I don't know where it is. Let me say it this way. The administrator, sibling, sister, had a grandson who, because his relative was the principal of the school, thought he does not have to follow the law and order of the school. So he was not in my class, he was in another class, and the teacher just could not deal with it because I had the designation of master of discipline, the child was referred to me. I called the child, I found out, that, and one of something very simple, really, it's like the child refused to do homework, didn't check, whatever the teacher said. I called the child to my class and asked him, I understand this, this is what's happening. I said, do you do your homework? He says, no, sir. I said, why? Why not? He had no answer. Okay, so then I, offer a proposal. When your teacher gives you homework again, you have to do it. Do you understand that? 
Yes, sir. Good. By the way, that's a quick lesson that I say to teachers. As a teacher, I'm responsible for two things. One, that I am heard. If I ever ask the question, did you hear me? You say yes. Mission accomplished. Check. My next question, do you understand me? You say yes. Tick. The ball is now in your court. Whatever I say, when you do not understand, when you do not hear, that's on me. I need to either increase my volume. When you do not understand, I need to repackage it and send it back to you in a way at a, a level that you understand. That's my responsibility. I asked the child the same two questions. I got yes, yes. So I said, if your teacher gives you homework today, do it. By the way, if you do not do it, then I will see you in the morning. But let me tell you ahead of time, let me give you a forecast what the weather will look like tomorrow for you. And I told him, if you do not, you will, this is what's going to happen. Now, some people, you will have the board, but I prefer the um, application of education, the board of education, uh, to the seat. But some kids normally at the palm of their hands, if they're jerky, I don't apply because I don't want to apply it to the fingers. So I will just turn them, you know, and then apply it. I'm right on it. Okay. So in this case, the next morning I sent for the boy. The boy came in, asked him, did you have homework? Yes, sir. Look, can I see it, please? I see it, but it's not done. So where is, do you have some place else where you have it? No, sir. Okay, just for a little bit of history, what did I tell you yesterday? You told me? Got it. What did I promise you will happen if you don't do it? He hesitated, but I repeat the question. Remember, did you hear me? Did you understand? And when he said yes, I, I said, okay, well, I need to deliver. He, I turned him around. Um, you know, and then I applied Brother Joe what was necessary, you know, just in case so people can get it. One, two, three. Law and order. <laughs> yes, yeah. Well, so, and then the boy was dismissed. This happened before nine o'clock. The end of the day, nothing. The next morning, this is where I needed um, do not render evil for evil and some other things. The next morning, I was minding my own business. Just completed the, oops, just completed the uh, morning devotion with my class, and a message, well, the clerical person came to my class and says, the principal would like to see you. Okay, I did this time out to my class and said, I'll be right back, went to the office. Got there, inside the office opened. When I got in, there was another uh, lady sitting there. So I just said, good morning. Principal beckoned me to have a seat. I sat, and as soon as I sat, the jitney came in. And the principal threw me under the jitney. You know, I get rolled over the bus. In other words, that's what happened. As soon as I sat down, the other lady just unloaded on me. This, I found out, was the grandmother of the child I sprang the day before, who is the older, more dominant, sibling of the principal. And obviously dominant, just, you know. And so, you know, I was thrown under the bus. She just went on and on for like 20 minutes. And I said nothing. I had emotions, though. I was feeling, first, remember what I said earlier. The principal had given me this designation. If I was incompetent to do it, you should take it away. And if I was unfair and prejudicial in my application, take it away. None of that. 
I look across the table at the principal while this other person who I was not introduced formally. As soon as I sat, I said good morning, and then the morning went from good to under the bus. All I see is motor oil. <laughs> anyway, under the bus. Um, and she went on, and one line of threat was, by the end of the month, you'll be out of your job. That's one, one of the things she said, because she worked at the Tribune, and she's going to put my name in the Tribune. And I'm looking at the, at the principal, you know. Like, <laughs> nothing. He say nothing. So, you know, and, the, and so I, I said this to the, to the lady. When I was allowed, you know, to get a word in sideways, I said, if you, de if you describe, because she said she described the buttocks of this grandson, um, that it was changing color, you know. He was light-skinned. Now, of course, sometimes people of more melanin in the skin don't get that kind of treatment. Just because you're light-skinned, you could see Mark, you know. Oh. But I, at the same force, because I have a measured force, you know. <clears throat> I said, if you describe the way you describe this person, if, there is, if that is as bad as you describe, I humbly apologize. Uh, it was never my intent, nor to intentionally abuse a child or with too much force that I think that's not me. Now, this is, this is my door opening for the principal to come to my aid because you wouldn't have given to me if you thought I was of that ilk. But she moved. So this other person, when she was out of breath and stopped, then I looked to the principal for, okay, now she have the final word. You know what she says? Thank you, Mr. Fowler, you were dismissed. I got up, walked out. Now, I need to tell you this so you can get the picture. When I got, I had a great relationship with my, the whole staff. There were three bigger, there were three, I would know, I had to describe this properly without being offensive. There were three big women who were janitorial staff. So much so that in the morning when I greet them, when I came in, when I get close enough, I will run to them, one to one particular, run, and then I will be airborne. She used to catch me in the air, you know. And that's how we greet one another in the morning. There were some big women. They were outside of the office. So they heard the whole thing where this woman was throwing me under the bus and stomping me with words. As soon as I got out, the student came, beat me the door and said, we heard everything in there they say about you. Well, when she come out here, we can fix our business. Yeah. What? Now, remember what my mindset. I am upset, like angry with the principal. I was, didn't know this person. Now, my, the switch in my head. If I just say, look, I ordered it, I go in. I, I remember I left my class with a timeout, I'd be right back. This is 20 minutes plus now. And I'm going to my class. My mentally, I need to be able to go back and teach. But I'm look, and now when I step out of the door, there are these my three friends, who think they are my bodyguard. We waiting out here till she come out here. <laughs> and you know, and if now I have to switch now from y'all do that to try to move these three women. And I stopped, maybe took two steps. Then I stopped. I said, no, no, I'm okay. Don't do that. Come with me. My, my mind is, if I'd walk away, 
those three ladies would have been charged for assault or worse. You know, they were big, I tell you. So if they did lay hands on her, you know, suddenly, <clears throat> then those three persons, my three friends, would have been, of course, um, in violation of the law. Now, my task now is to drag them. How do you expect me, look at me, to drag these people, these three of them, to around the corner and say, look, I'm okay. God is good all the time. Thanks to God. They, 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 they followed me because they were still talking loud, you know, and other people sat looking out of their class. Let's go. Because they were, they were a little rowdyish, you know, trying to get them away from there. But let me fast track this for you because this ain't part of the story, the message. But that's what Paul was talking about. So um, when I got back to my class, I told my colleague, and I said, you know what? Uh, I just need to teach until break time. Then I'm going back to the office to tell the principal how I felt I was treated. After teaching 40, 50 minutes, I didn't have that same intensity to go back and say, because that's going to take, when I would already need to say, it's going to probably take more than 15 minutes, you know. So I said, no, I'm waiting till lunchtime. By the time lunchtime came, my emotion would have gone now even worse. I said, you know what, I'm going to write her. Maybe in that way I'll put some words in there so harsh to describe what I felt. By 3 o'clock, nothing. To shorten this, I said, I'm not going to bother with it. By the time I got home and I told my wife, be you, what had happened that day. No, I'm not going to write. So I never told the principal. But here's what happened. And this is, this is like a, I said, God, how come? Two weeks afterwards, the principal bought me, as I say, out of the blue, bought me a, a joke book, a joke book at the staff meeting. Give me a joke book that was made for people who are not Bahamians of color. These, one of the jokes in the book was, why did the orange stop when it was crossing the road? That's a joke. The answer is, it ran out of juice. You know what kind of joke? I would never say that publicly. And, and you know, this is ridiculous. No. And, and, and she, I believe the principal felt bad. She knows she mistreated me. And now she want, this is a, a form of a little token to apologize and give me this book. Oh, but here's, the, here's the, the, the highlight of it all. The principal's daughter was graduating from high school the following year. And here's what the principal did. The principal asked me if I would put on makeup on her daughter to go to the prom. May I say to you, I've never put makeup on nobody. Okay. Not on myself. And you know, I, I did it. <laughs> That's what I can tell you. I did it. I, I went as should, what should she look like? A clown <laughs> or something else? I could, I could paint a little bit. Anyway, I looked at it this way. I, I, went, I, I went to the, I was called to the principal house um, to where I would apply the makeup on a daughter to go to the prom. 
Verse 16 says, rejoice always. <laughs> rejoice always. It means every when. Doesn't mean whenever that is, in the past, present, or future. Rejoice always. In Greek, there are some words that are, well, I mentioned verbs at the beginning. The believer is required or asked to rejoice always. Believers can rejoice always because their joy is not based on circumstances, but rather in God. Circumstances change, but God does not. Philippians 4 and 4 did not say, groan in the spirit always. And again, I say, groan. Mm -mm. You do have the liberty, though, to groan if you wish. But the apostle Paul's words to the saints there at Philippi says, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. It also says in verse 17, pray. We don't like to pray. We use the words, but we don't pray. If I said, let us pray, and I bowed my head to pray, and if I had a device to measure how many of you actually pray, hmm. By the way, we have prayer meeting on Monday evening, 6.30, virtually, you know, you're invited to come. Pray without ceasing. Christians are to pray with, to pray continually. Closing your eyes, bowing your head, and folding your arms cannot be done without ceasing. You don't have your eyes closed all the time. So that ain't it. You can't be, even putting it however you want to fix your hand, you can't do that without ceasing. You cannot do it. In fact, these are not synonymous with praying, but rather customs of prayer. That's all. We just, they're just custom. Prayer is communication with God, and we can live each day in constant, flowing conversation with God. There are valuable implications that we could learn from this command. The use of voice is not an essential element in prayer. In other words, you don't need to be heard. You can pray silently. The posture of prayer is not of primary importance either. The place of prayer is not of great importance. The particular time of prayer is not important. A Christian should not be in a place where he or she could not pray. Because you can pray in any format, anytime, anywhere. Verse 18. And everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. We don't give thanks for everything, but rather in everything. We recognize God's sovereign hand is in charge and not by blind faith or chance. It is attributed to Charles Spurgeon who once said, and I wholeheartedly agree, that when joy, that is rejoice always, and when prayer are married, the first child is gratitude. When joy and prayer are married, their first child is gratitude. If you have joy and you're praying, there will be an automatic sense of thankfulness. After each of these exhortations, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and in everything give thanks. We are told to do this because it is the will of God. The thought isn't that this is God's will, so you must do it. Rather, the thought is 
this is God's will, so you can do it. Don't say, you, I can't do it. Yes, you can, because it is God's will. It is not easy to rejoice always or to pray without ceasing and in everything to give thanks, but we can do it because it is God's will for us to do so. So, when you come to church, do not quench the spirit. That's what it says in verse 19. When you come to church, do not quench the spirit. Quench have a sense like, like putting water on fire. Do not quench the spirit. It is, of course, used metaphorically. And we do this by doubting. If you come with no expectation, no, if you don't come ready to be here and to participate, you're quenching the spirit. Indifference, I ain't checking. This is just something on my to-do list on a Sunday. But I don't intend to get nothing, I don't intend to contribute anything as a sense of indifference. Some, of course, just totally reject Christ. I only come because some friends are here. And by distraction as well, distracting others, is another way to quench the spirit um, in this place when we gather together as God's children. When people start to draw attention to themselves, um, or to discourage others in ministry, because some people are verbally they come and say, child, you do that? Child, I ain't doing that anymore. No you doing that? Child, not me. And this person who's so eager to be involved, you just shut them down, quenching the spirit. They are sure to do that. It says, do not despise prophetic utterances. In other words, do not look down on Bible studies or, or something that is or something beneath you, and do not be indifferent to the word of God when it is shared. Also, examine everything carefully. This, uh, that, this is what I call applying the biblical or the celestial solvent. And that is the word of God. Be like the Bereans. When somebody comes to share with them, go and check scripture and see if it's there. Don't just believe everything somebody who has a, in front of a mic or, or any other platform. Examine everything. Hold fast to that which is good. That is, stop getting swing. Don't let anybody swing you. Hold fast to that which is true and genuine. Abstain from every form of evil. And when the testing is complete, any revealed aspect of evil must be rejected outright. This includes evil that comes dressed up like something else, spiritually um, incredible. I just want to read this and then I'm going to turn sideways and disappear. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you, holy. And may you be, as is your spirit, your soul, and your body, may it be preserved, complete, without blame, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful is he who calls you. That is God. God is faithful. And he also will bring it to pass. If God says so, it'll happen. Let me assure you, brothers and sisters, you can depend on God. He is a dependable God. Brethren, pray for us here at Calvary, the leadership, or, um, those in, uh, serving in various aspects of the ministry, of course, the, the elders and the deacons. And of course, greet one another. Of course, they talk about a holy kiss. A holy kiss was similar to what we'll even give a high five today. You know, I adjure you by the Lord to have this letter. In other words, read your Bible. And so I say this, may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all, today and always. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you again for the incredible truth of your word. Thank you, Lord, for the experiences that you individually have given to each of us. And Lord, we can come full circle and still come back to say to you, thank you. 
Thank you. And our, our desire is always to rejoice because you've given us that directive. We are to pray without ceasing. We are to love one another. Thank you. And so, Father, today I pray even as we leave this physical place, conscious of the fact that we will never leave your presence, Lord, cause your word to reverberate within us so that we might bring joy, not only to you, but that's our primary focus, but, Lord, to those around us so that you might be magnified in their lives. These things, Father, I ask with thanksgiving. In Jesus' wonderful name and all of God's children said, Amen. Amen.